I'm sorry I don't have any hand motions for you reading 2 Kings 6. But we are back in 2 Kings. And as you look for 2 Kings 6, I'll say just a couple of words about this section. You know, we were in 2 Kings 5 last week and we looked at Naaman's cleansing. And then this week we're in 2 Kings 6. And this is, uh, this is not a sequential section of the Bible. It's not like uh, chapter 4 is before chapter 5 and chapter 6. The events are kind of these standalone uh, pictures of things happening. And they're putting together this point. They're all kind of communicating a point from different uh, points of view. And I've really been encouraged looking at 2 Kings 6 this week, thinking about how it shows us how God has complete and absolute control over anything and everything that's happening in our lives. Second uh, Kings was written to Israel when they were in exile. And if you were in exile, far from the land that God had promised you, uh, where you were essentially a servant in a foreign land, you might start to wonder, is God really bigger than my circumstances? Can God really be trusted? Is he really here? Is he really with me? That's something that I think this section of Second Kings encourages us with. So with that, please remain seated and give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. This is 2 Kings 6, 8-15. through 15. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So far the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, we pray, sanctify us in the truth. Your Word is truth. Show us Christ and His grace this morning. By the power of Your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who know You and love you and follow you more and more each day. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, sometimes uh, you just look around at life and you say, I have absolutely no idea what to do. Right? I see some knowing nods. I have absolutely no idea what to do. The oh no moments of life. You know, sometimes in these moments, the best we can do is pray like Jehoshaphat who said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on You. That prayer takes an incredible amount of faith to pray. Because if we're honest, Jehoshaphat's prayer puts us in our place because our eyes aren't always on the Lord. They're on rising inflation. They're on the depleting funds in your IRA. 
They're on the relationship problem that you face. They're on your family member's illness. They're on 101 things that distract you from keeping your eyes on the Lord. My eyes aren't always on the Lord, I can tell you that much, and I think we could all agree. So to try and break our gaze from the problems around us and lift our eyes to the God who can save us, I want us to look this morning at 2 Kings chapter 6. It's this story that's a perfect reminder for the I-have-no-idea-what-to-do moments in life. As we walk through this story in three scenes, I want you to ask yourself this question. What does the Lord have to show me here about keeping my eyes on Him? Three scenes in the story with something to learn from each of them. First, a spy in the king's bedroom. Second, a secret army surrounding the prophet or protecting the prophet. And finally, a shocking banquet for the enemy. Let's get started then looking first at this uh, first scene, a spy in the king's bedroom. I think what we learn here in this first scene is that because the Lord's eye is on everyone and everything that is against you, you can keep your eyes on him. Because the Lord's eye is on everyone and everything against you, you can keep your eyes on him. So at the outset of this story, we find the king of Syria making a play against Israel. Israel is, in many ways, a tiny country in the wrong place at the wrong time, at least on a geopolitical level. It was the crossroads for travel and trade, and as such, it had a big bullseye on its back. It was always in the crosshairs of the great kings surrounding Israel. So Syria is making a play against Israel. But Israel stays one step ahead of Syria every single time. It's like Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote. Do you guys remember that? Some of you young ones, maybe not. Not Wiley e. Coyote, but Wild E. Coyote, right? Everything misfires, backfires, blows up in Syria's face, and they cannot give the drop on Israel. They cannot win. The king of Syria is wondering what is happening? What is up with this? It's kind of this funny scene. Mighty Syria is coming against tiny Israel, but it's like Israel always stays two steps ahead. More than once or twice we read. What's going on here? I can just see it. I think you can probably imagine it. The king of Syria is furious by this point. One or two or five attacks foiled. The Syrian uh, military leaders return empty-handed. You can just imagine you know, tables being flipped in the planning room. What is happening here? I think Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message puts it best. He says here for verse 11, Tell me, who is leaking information to the king of Israel? Who is the spy in our ranks? Where is the rat? That's what the king of Syria is asking. But his officers answer him, right? No, my master, dear king, it's not any of us. It's Elisha, the prophet in Israel. He tells the king of Israel everything you say, even what you whisper in your bedroom. Well, that's pretty disconcerting, isn't it? Even what you whisper in your bedroom. A spy in the king's bedroom. Uh, in our hyper-connected age, I think we've probably lost a lot of uh, fear of uh, surveillance. We're kind of desensitized to it. Uh, just the other day, Mariana and I were discussing uh, buying a new mattress or something, and sure enough, uh, mattress ads start appearing on social media. Mariana said, they're listening to us. And she laughed, I laughed, Alexa laughed, Siri laughed. <laughs> We're so used to it. It doesn't even phase us anymore. But here's the thing. 
even if you are the most offline, disconnected, VPN-using, totally secure person there is, the Lord of heaven and earth hears even what you whisper in your bedroom. It's a terrifying and comforting truth that we learn in this first scene. Nothing in this world happens behind God's back. Corum Deo. It's this Latin phrase worth remembering. Corum Deo. It means in the presence of God. Everything happens before the face of God. God sees and God hears and God knows. Jeremiah 23-24 Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see? declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? declares the Lord. That's great news for suffering saints. And it's horrible news for those who stand against God's justice and God's people. I say against God's justice and God's people because you have those who just generally, by their way of life and by their disobedience to God, just tear away at the fabric of morality and justice in a general way. And those who come against God's people specifically, those who oppress God's people intentionally, but you have to hear this, not one injustice, not one crooked deal, not one ounce of pain or anguish, not anything, not one instance of persecution, not one instance slips God's notice. In one sense, it's safe to say that we live in a context really far removed from the story we're reading this morning. Uh, we're probably not going to walk out those doors today and be surrounded by an invading army with chariots and spears and swords. But we're no strangers, are we, to the pain and the suffering that we experience at the hands of people bent on defying and disobeying God, bent on breaking his commands and opposing his kingdom, whether it's direct persecution and oppression or just the pain of living in a world broken by sin and by sinners, uh, both and, all of the above, and all of our hurt, we ask, is God seeing this? Does God hear? And as our bleary eyes flick through the news feeds and switch through the channels watching what's unfolding around the world, we ask ourselves, does God see it? Does God hear it? Our story here reminds us that God sees it. And God hears it. God sees and hears every sin committed by you and every sin committed against you. God sees it, and God hears it. God sees and hears harsh thoughts, insensitive words, abusive actions. God sees it, and God hears it. God sees each and every step of the prowling lion tempting you to sin and stray and doubt and despair. God sees that too, and he hears it. Each and every and all of the suffering that you and I face happens before the face of God. God sees it and hears it. Matthew 9, 4 but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why did you think evil in your hearts? Jesus sees and hears even what his enemies and the enemies of his people whisper in their bedrooms. That's the Jesus we serve. He hears it all. He sees and hears it all. That's bad news for the enemies of God's people, but that is good news for you this morning. If you, by faith, are looking to Jesus and longing for a Savior who sees, Jesus sees it. Jesus hears it. And because Jesus' eye is on everything and anything that is against you, you can keep your eyes on him. That's what we learn from this first scene, the spy in the king's bedroom. And it takes us to the second scene in the story. 
the second scene, a secret army protecting the prophet. What I want you to hear there is, is, is this. Because the Lord surrounds you with his protection, you can keep your eye on him. Because the Lord surrounds you with his protection, you can keep your eyes on him. So the king of Syria finally catches a break, or so he thinks. His problem is Elisha, that troubler of Israel, the prophet of God in Israel. He sends the army at his disposal to do away with just one man. It's a lot of firepower for just one man. He pulls out all the stops. How can this one man stand against the whole Syrian army? So let's pick back up in 15. Verse 15, look at it with me. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? You know, I, I grew up in the flatlands in Kansas. I'm a flatlander by birth. There's a lot of things I like about uh, the flatlands. I like the big open skies and the storms you can see rolling in. Uh, even when I lived in Mexico, it was kind of the same. Uh, but something I really um, experienced the last 10 years that I lived in California and now living here in Virginia is this sense of comfort that you have living close to the mountains, kind of in little valleys surrounded by hills and mountains. Maybe some of you live even closer to the mountains, and you know what that feels like. There's something comforting and reassuring about it. Even though our modern Western mind doesn't think about mountains necessarily as a place of safety, uh, in the ancient world, uh, it is considered that you know, the mountain is the place where you're safe. Um, it, it's still that way in some parts of the world. That's what the psalmist has in mind in Psalm 125 too, when he says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So when you hear that Elisha walks out and his, his servant walks out and sees that they're surrounded, it's this idea, they're, they're, on, they're in the holy city, on the mountain of the Lord. It's a place of safety, even though they're surrounded. It's a great description of the sense of divine security behind this scene in our story. Um, it's one thing to find the comfort uh, in the fact that God sees and hears everything, right? Um, but I think that knowing that God knows and that he also surrounds his people with his protection makes it even more encouraging. We don't just serve a God who sees and hears and forgets. We serve a God who surrounds his people with divine protection. We serve a God who doesn't just sit passively keeping tabs on it all. He's actively in favor of his people, actively acting on their behalf, protecting and defending us. We're not always aware of this. In fact, uh, no one was less aware of this than Elisha's servant. Elisha's servant gets up one morning. They're not in Jerusalem. They're in Dothan. But it is this idea of the city on a hill. And he gets up one morning and he makes his way outside, right? So he's eating breakfast. Maybe he's eating his unleavened donut. I don't know what the servant of the prophet of Israel eats. Maybe his matzo donut. We know he wasn't eating bacon. Uh, he wanders outside um, and he looks around. And he looks and he says, oh no. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. So I'm pretty sure at this point he drops his donut. He runs and talks to Elisha. It sounds so quaint in, in English when we hear him say, alas, my master, what shall we do? <laughs> alas is a nice biblical way of freaking out. <laughs> He's freaking out. He has seen the armies of Syria surrounding where he and the prophet are, he knows they're coming for them and them specifically. Alas, my master, what shall we do? 
Uh, until our eyes are on the Lord, we freak out uh, in our own version of alas quite a bit until we see God surrounding us with his protection. There's this wonderful passage in John Bunyan's classic book, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, maybe you've read it. If not, I encourage you to. It's this allegory looking at the Christian life. And Bunyan describes this moment when Christian, the main character, uh, is just freaking out. He's trying to find shelter for the night, but there are these two ferocious lions on each side of the road. It's a valid concern. And then his eyes are open. I want you to hear what Bunyan says. Christian hurried and went forward. Now before he had gone far, he entered into a very narrow passage. And looking very narrowly before him as he went, he saw two lions in the way. Now he thought, I see the dangers that my friends doubtful and fearful were driven back by. The lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. Then he was afraid, and he considered running from them too, for he thought nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name is Watchful, perceiving that Christian had stopped as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is your strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained, and are placed there for trial of faith where it is, and to reveal those that had none. Keep in the middle of the path, and you will not be harmed. Christian went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but listening to the directions of the porter. He heard them roar, but they did him no harm. Then he clapped his hands and went on until he came and stood before the gate where the porter was. The lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. When we live in fear, facing the enemy that surrounds us, we're like Elisha's servant. Uh, we desperately need spiritual sight. We need our eyes to be open, to see the divine protection that the Lord surrounds us with in His grace. Because the Lord surrounds us with His protection, we don't have to freak out and focus on the enemy. We can keep our eyes on Him. I'm not really talking about seeing this supernatural vision like what we have in this story. When they look around and they see the, the flaming chariots and this invisible army that they can now see surrounding them with protection. More than likely, we'll never see behind the curtain in that way. We'll probably never get a backstage pass to all of the ways God is working uh, around us and behind the scenes to protect us. But we can set our eyes by faith on His promises. And by believing His promises, we can see. Israel could trust God's promises in Deuteronomy 20, 1-4, where it says, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Now, our wars look different. We don't fight the same battles. Our battles are spiritual, and our resources for battle are spiritual, but they are just as strong to stand against the enemy. Ephesians 6, verse 10 and following, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Paul goes on to list every piece of that armor. But that armor taken as a whole is all that we receive in Jesus to stand firm against the enemy who comes against us. Standing firm in Jesus against one army, ten armies, a thousand armies, I like those odds. That's what we have in Jesus. If God is for you, who can stand against you? See, just like Elisha and his servant facing this powerful army, uh, you can't see with your eyeballs everything the Lord is doing and has done and will do. But by faith, you can believe the promise. And you can see by faith everything that the Lord has given to you that is, he has put at your disposal to stand firm when you face that which you most fear, that which would most harm you. You might be thinking, yeah, but a vision of the heavenly army would still be pretty helpful if we could really see it just for a minute. But haven't we received something better than that? This is from Miles Van Pelt. It's so good. I'm just going to share it with you. He says, Did not the Father send the Son in the fullness of his kingdom and power into this world? Has not the invisible God become visible in the incarnation? Our Lord did not just peel back the curtain of his invisible kingdom. He came from it and lived in our midst as a flesh and blood man. With Jesus Christ, we see clearly the power of God's invisible kingdom in its fullness. In fact, compared to what Elisha's servant saw on that day, we have seen so much more. Jesus came from behind the curtain and he lived among us and he said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's now here. We have seen so much more in Jesus. He said, behold, the kingdom of God is here in me. And he invites us to that kingdom. Because the Lord surrounds you with his protection, you can keep your eyes on him. This story is really rife with irony. Uh, the king of Syria looks like a clown thinking he's got a spy in his ranks, but the fly on the wall is really uh, the God of heaven and earth. The servant of Elisha freaks out, saying, alas, and then his eyes are opened. Well, in this final scene, we see a striking reversal from what just happened with Elisha. It's shocking. The servant's eyes are open to see the Lord's army surrounding him with divine protection. And then we see this final scene, a shocking banquet served to the enemy. Here I think what we see is that because judgment and mercy are in the Lord's hands, you can keep your eyes on him. If his eye is on everything and everyone that is against you, and if his protection surrounds you, and if judgment and mercy are in his hands, then you can keep your eyes on him. It's such a shocking end to this story because when Elisha's servant sees the secret army of the Lord surrounding them, what do you think he expected would happen? Surely what he expected was the very next thing he would see is the defeat and the utter destruction and annihilation of the Syrian army, right? Poof! They would be gone. That's what we think. But this story ends with something even more powerful than that kind of protection. Picking up in verse 18, we see the mercy of God and really a beautiful picture of the gospel. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. 
So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. I have to confess, that was not on my Second King 6 bingo card. It wasn't what Elisha's servant thought would happen. It wasn't what the king of Israel thought he should do when he had all these captives sitting before him. There is nothing more surprising over and over again than the Lord's mercy. Instead of annihilating the enemy, what happens? The God of Israel protects the enemy army. He protects Syria. He protects Israel, but he also protects Syria. There's this ironic twist of fate striking the enemy blind after opening the servant's eyes. What does the Lord do? He prepares a banquet of mercy for the enemy. A great feast, we read. Bread and water doesn't sound much like a great feast. They probably had to feed a lot of people since this was a great army. But what this evil invading army is sitting down to at this great feast is a feast of mercy. An undeserved feast of mercy. And mercy is the hardest pill to swallow when we're up against the enemies of God's people. When we're up against those who would do us harm, those who have brought us pain, those who have caused us hurt. It's like the martyrs, those who had given their life for their faith. We read in the book of Revelation, they cry out before the throne, How long, O Lord? Give us revenge. Judge our enemies. But the Lord sets out a feast of mercy here for those whom we would expect He would utterly destroy. What I'm saying, I guess, in all of this is we can stop fixating on the downfall of the enemy when we realize that judgment and mercy are in the Lord's hands. And because that judgment and mercy is in the Lord's hands, we don't have to be the ones to deal it out. It's what He will decide. It's His plan and His will. We can stop staring at our enemies wondering when God will drop the hammer and we can keep our eyes on God. James 2.13 says, Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We have to embrace that shocking truth if we're going to embrace the glory of the gospel. It's the backwards logic of the gospel. God sets out a banquet of mercy for the unworthy. We who are most deserving of judgment have received grace and mercy in Jesus. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a logic deeper than our inclination towards retribution. Mercy triumphs. Romans 5.8 God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can't put our eyes on the Lord in, until we realize and we've learned that this feast of mercy has a seat for everyone at the table. 
We can't take our eyes off of our enemies wondering when God will judge them until we recognize this truth. That reconciliation with God didn't happen for the Syrian army. They just think, that was weird. No way we're going back there again. Uh, They missed the memo on God's mercy. But you don't have to miss the memo on God's mercy today. The banquet of mercy is set for you today. Come and eat at this table. And dear struggling Christian who is stuck in the thick of problems, in pain, in hurt, you have to remember, uh, as you're in your moment where you say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you, remember to keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the one who is keeping an eye on whatever it is that's against you right now. The one who is surrounding you with his protection. And the one who is inviting sinners and giving mercy to bad people at the feast of his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, give us eyes to see. Eyes to see that even what is whispered in the dark and in secret is shouted aloud and clear before your throne. Those things which we do and those things which are done to us. Give us eyes to see your protection surrounding your people. Give us eyes to see that you hold out mercy to people we don't think deserve it. Even as you carry out perfect justice according to your perfect plan. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.